Welcome back. You're watching Stockwatch with me, Julieta Televi, and joining me to take your questions this evening are Rowan Williams from Nitrogen Fund Managers and Gary Boyson from Rand Swiss. If you'd like to send questions to us, please SMS 1392, email stockwatch at bdtv.co.za, or tweet us at businessdaytv using the hashtag Stockwatch. Gary, Rowan, good to see you both here this evening. Rowan, if I may start with you, um, the market's enthusiasm is unstoppable uh, and, and quite convincing today. The, the all share up uh, 1%. Um, I mean, do you think we are getting ahead of ourselves or are you just lapping it up, really? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair question. We've, uh, I don't think we've seen such a strong start to January for a while. We're almost getting to 10% uh, for the all-share index. So, uh, yeah, today we sort of catch up after our close on Friday. Um, the U.S. markets had a particularly good session. We're seeing uh, some fairly sort of good numbers coming in the short term out of some of the technology companies alike of Netflix. So, um, I think that's buoying uh, optimism. You can, I think, you can see to what extent this inflation and interest rate narrative uh, has been having uh, on uh, basically market levels um, and um, market sentiment. And as we've seen a change in that uh, sentiment, uh, so we have seen uh, a significant uh, increase in the level. So uh, peak rates, uh, declining inflation. And uh, what looks like potentially a shallow recession or not a recession at all in the U.S. has led to, I think, considerable optimism. And uh, the U.S. markets were fairly low based. South Africa showing some value. So it does feel like it's a lot of the news and sort of the optimism is priced in now. But given that there's momentum and people have been sitting on the sidelines, it could run a little bit further. Gary, does that make you nervous or enthusiastic? <laughs> but that, mar that markets are going up. <laughs> no, it makes me enthusiastic. Of course, I love it when markets go Of course, it's enthusiastic. I love it. I think, you know, looking at it, I mean, there's a lot of data obviously still to come out. Uh, I think what, what makes me nervous is that, uh, you know, as Ron was saying, interest rates are, are just so key to, to where this market is going and the inflation story as well. So the idea that, uh, you know, inflation might be, you know, at least understood in the US, I think at this stage, you know, the last uh, inflation print there uh, came in in line with expectations. I think the market took a lot of optimism, uh, you, you know, around that. Um, the Fed is still very hawkish. I mean, we had had a couple of the, the, the officials coming out with, with slightly more dovish rate. Uh, into the close of last week, which I think helped to lift markets. But uh, the Fed is still still kind of saying terminal rate above 5%. Um, they're still saying that it's going to be higher for a long time, and the market is just not believing that. And uh, I mean, you know, I, I know on our, our, in our investment committee, you know, we, we're talking seriously about uh, a potential uh, rate cut from the U.S. Uh, as soon as uh, the last meeting of this year. I think more likely is, is probably early next year, but that is nowhere near what the Fed is saying. So I think yeah. there, is, there is a very, there's a large dislocation between what the market is believing and, and what the Fed is saying. I think that is dangerous because, uh, you know, don't fight the Fed is what they say usually. So, so if, 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 we, if the market has that wrong, there could potentially be a lot of downside still. But, but you do get the sense of China ending zero COVID, uh, poli zero COVID policy, buoying the idea that uh, we're going to get growth out of the, the second big, uh, biggest economy as well is, is certainly helping things. I mean, obviously, they closed for, for Lunar New Year now. So we've had, you know, we're going to have some volume out of the market uh, this week. Uh, so, so that might, I don't know, prices might, you know, to, to Rowan's point, might 
continue for a little bit just based on the momentum that we've seen so far. U.S. earnings season hasn't looked bad. I think the U.S. company is cutting a lot of jobs, really driving efficiencies, which is exactly what you want as an investor. Uh, so that, that I think, also helping, uh, you know, just to lift specifically the tech sentiment. So overall, I think the, 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 the global economy has had a very difficult time for two years. But I think, you know, we're hearing the right noises as investors yeah. and uh, the potential for recovery is great. I mean, it was interesting to see, uh, sorry, and it's not South Africa specific, um, it, the, uh, the hedge fund Citadel um, made an, a stonking profit last year, paid an unbelievable amount of money. Um, well, it, it got paid an unbelievable amount of money in fees as a result of it, but they had a return of 38%. So in really tricky markets, it's not impossible to make money, um, which is the lesson, but of course... I mean, the bets that you've made can go against you um, horribly. Um, Rowan, do you have any idea what they actually did buy, um, what they did well out of? Yeah, so uh, what was interesting to note that um, it's a bull-based multi-strategy hedge fund. So uh, they've got macro, they've got fixed income, equities, um, and they actually did well in all of their five large strategies. So it was broad-based uh, across across various uh, pockets of the market, and I guess they just read the markets incredibly well. They realized that uh, markets were, were, were yeah, uh, very susceptible to rising rates and um, inflation, so they must have been short bonds, there must have been short equities, um, and where there was a lot of correlation, which uh, hurt, you know, long-only investors and other investors, they were on the other side of a lot of those trades and clearly profiting. So what we are seeing is some of the commentary was that um, the multi-strategy hedge funds are starting to uh, take over from the sort of equity-focused hedge funds and become the, the very big gorillas and the sort of go-to um solution houses so uh, they're just very good at markets and understanding markets i think they see a lot of flow so they, they understand what's going on mm. and um yeah kudos to them a lot of smaller hedge funds equity focus actually lost money and clearly they were the ones uh, that were the gainers um so i don't think it may be as straightforward and maybe they're giving up some of those gains this year if the, yeah. the the sort of uh, rebound is a bit quicker than was anticipated but uh, yeah uh, well done to them yeah Okay, well, I'm just going to move on to questions because, uh, of course, now, you know, hindsight is fa fabulous science. Uh, we have the future to look ahead to, and, and one of the stocks that has perplexed people or, uh, or caught um, either wrong-footed them or maybe they've ridden the wave is Tungela. I know we get asked a lot of questions on it. Um, it's a, is it a buy? After the president announced that we're going to stick with coal-fired power stations, Gary, um, that's, I suppose, not really where Tungela is making its money. It's more in the export markets if it could get its coal there. I think, that, yeah, the, the second point is exactly the, the problem for Tugela at the moment. Obviously, Transnet uh, is hampering its ability to, to export coal into, into high energy prices, and that's, that's obviously going to have an effect on, on the, the, the commodity as well. But uh, I do buy Tugela at today's prices. I mean, it's, it's very difficult to say. Like I said, we, we put out the, the, the pick when it was in the low 20s. It's not, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's been a, you know, a massive run up. And I, I, I don't know, I think it's your view on the energy market is going to be absolutely key and uh, at this stage we are still you know to an extent facing an energy crisis there hasn't been enough uh, work done uh, to to ensure energy security so so i think coal unfortunately as much as we we don't want it to be attractive and we want to follow you know a more esg path uh, you know as a globe it's just not the practical reality and, and because of the underinvestment in the sector um there does look like there, there could be a shortage so so potentially you know hanging on to a tequila might not be a bad idea mm.
Rowan, um, okay, so if you had it, would you hang on to it? If you haven't got it, would you buy it? Yeah, so, I mean, what we have seen is an incredibly positive cycle uh, for coal, obviously driven by, yeah, the largely the energy crisis um, in Europe, which uh, I think to a large extent is um, priced in. And we have seen coal prices come off quite significantly. I mean, what is clear is that uh, coal is here to stay for longer, uh, be it in Europe or, or, or South Africa. Um, and uh, But I guess to what extent is that already in the price and is there sort of a supply a response to very high prices? So we feel that cyclically it has got very high. Um, having said that, the transnet issues are actually keeping the coal price high because of its uh, sort of uh, crimping uh, exports in South Africa to some extent. But mm. that could be resolved, which will be sort of good for Tugela, but bad for, for global coal prices. So we just think that uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's all priced in at this point, and we'll probably wait for a, a lower cyclical point to enter. Can I just ask, um, is the dividend priced in? Because Tungela's got an astounding dividend yield, doesn't it? It's a sort of north of 50-odd percent. So, um, and I mean, Gary, as a trade, is that, would you still buy Tungela for the dividends? Because dividends, you know, you, you, you already have taken the tax hit um, when you get to, you know, they're not classified as, I suppose, interest. So if you were looking for some income, would you simply buy Tungela shares? Then maybe if you have a loss in the capital, um, a capital loss in the share price post the dividend, you can kind of do some savvy things with your portfolio and offset that loss against gains in your portfolio. Or is that all just too much admin and you don't want to go down that route? I, I'd like to explore the strategy that you bring forward here. Um, so, so, yeah, for, for me, yeah, I mean, you, you get, I mean, like I sat on a retail trading desk, you know, for, for years. So, so you get, you know, clients that come with exactly what you're talking about. Nice dividend strip strategy saying, oh, this dividend isn't priced into the stock correctly. Uh, market maybe doesn't appreciate that there's going to be a special dividend paid by a stock or, you know, in Tugela's case, the dividend yield is quite high and might be maintained. Um, so we want to buy it because we think, you know, the stock price is not going to drop as much as the dividend if we buy on X date, on LTD and sell on X date. And, and guys, guys will trade around that. The, the problem is the more people are trading around that, and the more eyes that are on that and the more professionals that are in the market, uh, the less the opportunity is as well. And, and you tend to find that uh, specifically on the bigger counters, these, these, uh, the, the dividends, you know, the dividend model that you're talking about is very, very efficient. So, uh, you know, okay. you would hope that the analysts that are covering these stocks are, are, are smart enough to work out that, uh, you know, th that the dividend is included in their, you know, present value of all future earnings. So uh, it should, it should be in the price already, but um, yeah, uh, I don't know. And together specifically, I'd have to have a look at it. <laughs> to be honest, I, I haven't looked at it in that detail uh, for the show. Okay, just very quickly, uh, Rowan, to end off with you, I mean, you were sort of uh, smiling. I wasn't sure if it was rueful or if you thought, hmm, yes, I, I'm up for the admin. Or if you think. Yeah. No, yeah, I think um, if you're a clever trader, you look for, for an edge. And uh, I mean, that, that uh, what Gary was referring to, the dividend stripping, I mean, it uh, has some potential benefits. Um, and I guess there's a significant margin of safety as a sort of uh, investor. If you're going to get 50% of your, your, your cost back, um, it does significantly reduce sort of the potential capital losses. So uh, what we have seen like so Kumba uh, has a very high dividend yield, but tends to be very volatile. So you kind of have to time your entry mm -hmm. right around that because sometimes that's the exact strategy that people are, are thinking of and they end up overpaying. So it, uh, it just it works, but you have to sort of get your entry point uh, fairly accurate.
Okay, we shall leave it there for the moment. Yeah, I think, I think yeah sorry, Gary. If you are, you are following that strategy, I mean, we always find what worked better is to actually watch the dividend and see what happens. So you know, if you see a stock that, that, you know, it's paying a huge dividend and for some reason is not falling on the day, but the rest of the market is down and you can clearly see that there's something odd within that pricing on that day, then sure, take a position. I mean, go for it. But, you, you know, as, as a model that or as a strategy that you, you're continually going to do this to kind of make risk-free gains, yeah, guys, it's it's efficient. It's efficiently priced enough that that you can't just rely on that as a as an overarching strategy. If I want to put it that way. There was a question that came through earlier, and I have to say my computer's gone sort of um, blank. So hopefully the the technical crew can help me out there. But it was a question about coronation fund managers, uh, and the viewer said, should I be paying particular attention to what's happened to their assets under management? So. Uh, I think last year they were about 630 rand and they dropped down, I think, to their worst was about 574 billion rand. Uh, by September, they are now at 602 billion rand. For you, does that, uh, um, do you pay great attention to what's happening to the assets under management? Is that what we should all pay uh, vivid attention to in terms of um, companies that are a proxy in a way for the markets? Or is it maybe just one aspect of why you might or might not buy Coronation? Look, I mean, it certainly is one of the key aspects. Obviously, uh, their revenue uh, will be driven by their AUM. Um, I guess what you're looking at is uh, what is driving that drop or changes in the AUM. So really, there's two key aspects. There's the market movement, um, and then there's uh, inflows or outflows um, from, from investors. So uh, if you're seeing sort of a reduction in AUM as a result of market movements, and uh, the asset sort of the inflows or outflows are fairly stable, you'd be less concerned. But if they're losing assets, and that's the reason for the reduction in AUM, obviously that's of concern. So these asset gatherers, it is a key consideration because obviously performance would drive the, uh, the asset base and the inflows. And uh, if uh, performance is poor, they're going to start losing assets. What we are seeing is there is general top-line pressure uh, from large institutional investors in terms of what they're willing to pay for active asset management. Uh, so that's already a little bit pressure on the top line. If they're losing assets as well, then that would be further pressure. They have a fairly fixed cost base. Um, and uh, as a result, uh, yeah, they would get margin compression. So it is a consideration. We obviously look at the dividend and how sustainable that is. And we like coronation because it looked like it got oversold relative to the market movement and how much uh, earnings they would lose and what the dividend would be. So mm. you got to 11, 12% dividend yield, which was very attractive. So for us, that is a key consideration for the investment case. Is that dividend yield sustainable? If it is, because the earnings are there and they're in cash, we think it's good value and it's now geared to the market. As you said, markets have gone up, more buoyant. And so the AUM has gone up, the earnings are going to go up, the dividend's going to go up. So that's actually quite attractive. Mm. So for us, um, we think it's a geared play on the market. The markets are moving up and uh, it's, it's still attractive here. Yeah. Gary, I mean, do you concur or do you have maybe um, a, a different preference? Because you have a few options in, uh, on the JSE. You've got 91, which I guess is the biggest rival, the listed rival. Uh, you've got PSG Consults, which I guess maybe there's a bit more wealth advisory. You've also got Signia. I mean, Rowan was talking about the resistance to fees charged by active managers. So the likes of Signia have come in with, you know, um, the ETFs and, and very low cost funds to kind of disrupt the market. Um, or do you want to talk about coronation per se? 
Well, no, we can talk about whatever you like. Um, yeah, so so we we actually prefer for ninety one at the, at this stage. Uh, coronation, I think you know part of uh, you know what Ron is saying is AUM is critical because AUM is the driver of of, of any asset management business. Uh, but AUM and performance are very linked. So it's not just about the, you know doing performance. And Ron did mention that you know if you have bad performance for a couple of years, investors are very fickle. They they will move out of your your stable. And and coronations uh, AUM has has been kind of very very sticky around this uh, kind of six hundred. A 600 billion rand level for, for a long time now. I mean, we're talking all the way back to kind of 2013, and they haven't kind of got the impetus to grow. And I don't know if that's, you know, many of their funds are very old. I mean, there's kind of a, I don't know if I should say it on TV, but there's a standing joke in the market that if you look at coronation performance, they always outperform, but their track record's always 25 years long. Um, so they, I think they have had, a, they have had a, difficult, a difficult time of it in the last couple of years. I think maybe it's important for viewers also just to, to highlight a couple of other risks as well. So certainly the risk around low costs uh, is, is very important. Technology is driving changes. It's, it's giving people a lot more power to invest on their own. Uh, you know, the, the rise of online platforms allows you to do a lot of this for you. The rise of passive products, which you talked about, which which Signia obviously you know, has, a, has an established footprint in, is, is also absolutely critical to, to stealing assets, uh, you know, essentially from, from these uh, large established asset managers like Coronation. Um, but then at the same time, there's also regulatory changes as well. So, you know, if we, if we see changes to, like, let's say the Regulation 28 framework, allowing investors, you know, more more access to their capital, the ability to, to put money, um, you know, more overseas, potentially products that Coronation doesn't have, uh, you know, mm -hmm. or isn't as dominant in, that could erode their, their asset base as well. Um, and then I suppose, yeah, finally, the other regulations also to keep an eye on is, is the, the whole idea of the bringing in the two-pot system and allowing, you know, South African, um, you know, South African savers to essentially act, access their retirement funds and withdraw a third of them ahead of time. That, that will also eat into the AUM of these companies, especially as South Africans become more and more under pressure, and Coronation obviously very focused on the on the domestic market. Yeah. So I mean, does that um, does that mean that uh, Rowan, for example, for you, um, would Coronation not be a long term investment uh, for your fund if you've got all these potential yeah, headwinds coming up? I mean, the two part system we thought that they were going to introduce it what by twenty twenty five. That that's now been pushed out. So. Okay, so maybe that's a, a, th a three or four year worry rather than a two year worry. Uh, but Regulation 28, I mean, that, that is surely making an impact already. Yeah, yeah. so look, there certainly are risks, business risks, there always are. I guess it's a question of what, what point are they priced in or, or excessively priced. And when it got to sort of 30 rand cum dividend, you were going, look, this it's just got too cheap because um, uh, there are those risks, but they're not sort of imminent and they're not uh, completely destructive of the business. And yes, it may eat at their top line, but if we get sort of reasonable performance and they, uh, the market moves up, that's quite uh, a geared uh, in terms of their, their income statement and we'll see good earnings growth notwithstanding those top line pressures. So I guess that's the risk assessment you take. But at the same time, at some point, there's a target price and a value because uh, maybe those risks are, you know, not priced in and, and people are too optimistic. So, yeah, at this point, we still like it, but you, you do have to be cognizant of, of the sort of, uh, you know, potential headwinds for the business. Just very quickly before I get to your stock picks, um, TFG came out with a trading update, what, post the market close or maybe just before, and it seemed very strong. And I wondered how you view that in light of what Mr. Price put out last week. Um, Mr. Price was quite quick, um, possibly to blame ESCOM uh, and the fact the impact that load sheddings had on stores without backup. But then they also talked about higher markdowns. But TFG 
good sales numbers, but also like-for-like -like sales growth very strong, whereas Mr. Price went backwards. So, I mean, if you are you getting a clearer sense of who's winning in the retail fraternity at this point, uh, Gary? Well, I think we're going to have a much better sense by the end of this week because there's still a lot of uh, a lot of retail updates to come out. But but you're absolutely right. I think Mr. Price, you know, I think they threw the kitchen sink at it and then and then blamed uh, load shedding for all their problems. But uh, as you said, I mean, like like for because I've, I've got the numbers here. I mean, the stock was down over seven percent on the day, but uh, you know they had price inflation of six point two percent in their goods. But they had, you know, if you look at same store same store sales, a decline of three point nine percent. So it can just tell you what uh, what their num what their volumes are doing at at this stage. Uh, I mean. They were also kind of, yeah, I think the market maybe was also a little bit worried to Mr. Price that there was aggressive discounting, a lot of promotions, which, which leads you to believe that maybe it wasn't ESCOM and it was instead maybe they missed on their fashion line. And if that's the case, then you could see very, very good numbers coming out of the rest of the apparel retailers. Mm. Now, you, you look at TFG, I mean, you know, they're saying kind of record sales on, on Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Remember, both TFG and Mr. Price both have acquisitions inside their, their numbers. So that's boosting up the, the kind of absolute number. And you've got to, you've got to look through into the underlying uh, you know, the underlying like-for-like -like sales. But, uh, yeah, TFG saying, uh, you know, TFG Africa's like-for-like -like turnover up 5.7%. So, yeah, overall, like you say, looks, TFG looks pretty good, but um, yeah, I'd still have to dig through it properly. Yeah. I mean, Rowan, just a very quick comment. Do you think um, retail's a, maybe a basket case or not so much? You don't extrapolate what happened uh, to Mr. Price to the rest of the retail sector? Because... No, I don't think you can. I think uh, you can see, for example, TFG's Africa uh, stores have 70% uh, backup power, whereas uh, Mr. Price was only 40%. So that just gives you an idea. I think it's very much case for case, and maybe the operating environment getting more challenging means there are winners and losers, okay. and maybe that is what we're seeing. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, Mr. Price's loss maybe is uh, Fashini's benefit. Okay. Very quickly, your stock picks, uh, Rowan, sticking with you. Yeah, so following in from the, the retail theme, uh, we've actually chosen Woolies. So it does seem like Woolies is starting to get its mojo back. Just in terms of uh, fixing uh, the group um, and the focus, uh, the FBH business, um, the fashion beauty home business, that was really become a drag. They sort of lost their way and uh, they've seen significant management changes there. Um, and that looks like it's gaining traction again. And maybe that's also where Mr. Price has lost mm. a little bit of market share. Willie's getting back to basics, focusing on, on what they do well and attracting the, the shoppers with well-priced propositions. They're dealing with uh, um, David Jones in Australia, managing to sell that business looks like for a reasonable sum of money if you had the property. So that will be a significant uh, uh, less distraction. So more focused business, better execution. The food has been sort of slowing down a little bit but still a seriously good business and uh, they're getting sort of their pricing proposition right there sort of cutting the margin slightly so overall very cash generative it looks it, it looks like it's got further to go yeah okay. we like it okay gary how about you I'm going to go with Sassel. Uh, so Sassel obviously pulled back a lot just on, on the back of oil prices, and oil prices is always going to have uh, an impact on, on, on Sassel's uh, ultimate share price movements. Uh, but I mean, it's one, the company is dirt cheap. I mean, one year forward, uh, you're looking at about a four and a half PE, uh, dividend yield of uh, you know above 8% at this stage. But like I said, it all comes down to your, your, your oil outlook and your energy outlook. Um, 
you know, you've got China opening up over zero COVID. Uh, at the same time, if you, you had a look through the January OPEC report, you'll see that OPEC, uh, you know, is very much focused on saying that there's going to be less less growth and there's not going to be enough demand. So that kind of hints to me that uh, that they are not going to expand output dramatically and they're going to try and keep the market quite tight. If that's the case, you're going to get higher oil prices. We've already seen it moving up to on $88 a barrel on Brent today. If you get a little bit of a tailwind and a move back to, to $100 a barrel, I think SAS will do very well from the, the kind of three level so I'd say 300 targeting 360 370 for a trade um, keep your keep your stops quite tight that's my trade yeah okay good way to hedge yourself against filling the cost of filling up your fuel um, uh, your car if uh, oil does go back to hundred dollars a barrel um, so we shall leave it there Gary Rowan thank you very much for joining us this evening nice to chat to you both uh, Rowan Williams is from nitrogen fund managers Gary Boyson is from Ryan Swiss and the 90s back with Stockwatch tomorrow night have a good evening <laughs>